So Money, episode 271, Terry Trespicio. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Torabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. Welcome back to So Money, everyone. Happy Monday. Great to have you joining me on the show this week. We've got an amazing lineup, including Tim Gunn. And you're just going to love what he has to say about his career, Project Runway, and of course, money. Today, I have the privilege of introducing a wonderful, wonderful branding strategist who coaches experts, visionaries, entrepreneurs, and businesses to help them garner the attention they want for themselves and their brands. She is also a speaker, a storyteller, and on-air talent who just delivered her first TED Talk at TEDx in Kansas City this past summer. I love what she had to say in that TED Talk. I've talked about it on this podcast. She mentions how this pressure to search for our passion is just a bunch of baloney. And so we're going to talk about that. And we'll also talk about how she got started. You know, prior to building this career for herself, Terry spent a decade almost as senior editor at Martha Stewart's Whole Living magazine. There she hosted a live daily show by the same name on Martha Stewart Living Radio on Sirius XM. She continues to be a face in the media, appearing on national shows like Today, Dr. Oz, The Early Show, among many others. Terry's also the host now of her own show called Solopreneur on the Grant Cardone Network, and she has a podcast by the same name. She's also the author to her ebook, Take the Work Out of Networking. Plus, a little fun fact about Terry, she's a stand-up comedian who showcases her talent in venues across the Big Apple. Several takeaways from our time with Terry. One, when it comes to negotiating, why is it more helpful to think of your value and not your worth? Two, as an entrepreneur, what Terry identifies as the ultimate luxury? And finally, why you need to stop calling yourself a freelancer once and for all. Here we go. Here is Terry Trespicio. Terry Trespicio, welcome to So Money. I've been chatting you up a bit on this podcast. I'm obsessed with your TED Talk. Welcome to the show. <laughs> Thank you. You and I, of course, are friends. We're actually in a mastermind group together. Uh, for those of you who aren't really sure what a mastermind is, it's a fancy term for a collective of uh, like professionals who want to learn from each other and share resources and encourage each other. And I have the privilege of being in a mastermind with you and two other lovely, lovely women. And um, through that, we've gotten to really know each other and I've become obsessed with your work as a branding strategist. You help people like me, entrepreneurs, coaches, really understand how to position themselves in this marketplace to get the attention that they deserve and the sort of media attention that they need to really take their brand from good to great. I want to talk about your TED Talk, but first, Terry, tell us a little bit about how you got into this sector. I, you started out like me, like a journalist. You're working for Mark yes. Stewart. Um, you've, tr you've made this beautiful transition, which is very inspiring because you go to journalism school and you think all you're going to end up doing is writing copy for the AP, which is a great job, by the way. <laughs> but it's not, you know, always the, the job security is not wonderful, uh, as you've also experienced and I've experienced layoffs. So tell us how you made this transition from journalism to branding strategist. 
Well, I have to tell you, I had actually a very steady time for a long time. I was a, uh, and by the way, you were more practical than me. I didn't even go to journalism school. I got an MFA in poetry. Go oh, find a practical use for that. <laughs> <laughs> that would be an interesting study. Like go back and see all the graduates from that program. Where are they now? Well, exactly. And I knew that, uh, you know, when when they asked you, I, I went to Emerson College for my master's. And when they have you write the essay, and they're like, why do you want to come here? And I was like, let me tell you, it's not because the MFA is a big hot ticket to somewhere. Like, I am not under any illusion that someone's going to want to hire me because I have this. It's more like I wanted to do it. And I believe I was lucky enough to be in a position to invest in that. And it really helped me become better at my real trade, which is writing and developing great content. Started with poetry. And now, no, no one's buying my poetry. This is what I do. So I, but I did it a long run. I was at Martha Stewart for almost eight years and had the pleasure of cutting my teeth writing and developing content for one of the most iconic brands in the world. And I loved my time at Martha. I got to be an editor there. I was a senior editor there for many years covering health and wellness, psychology, career uh, relationships, all of it. And also had the opportunity to host a daily radio show for the Martha Stewart brand on Sirius XM, which I did for years. And so I got firsthand the experience of taking content from print to broadcast. And I realized that's a hard jump to make if you don't know how to do it. And I learned to do it. And then also got to do a lot of television media as a representative of the Whole Living brand because I worked for Whole Living magazine. And I thought, this is really fun. You start in one area, but then you figure out how do you make that content sing across all platforms? And I was paid to do it there. And I thought, there's, there's gotta be money in this because people need it. Content is king. Um, publications and publishing is in just, is, is changing and has changed dramatically. And yeah, I got laid off like a million other editors and producers. Right. And when that layoff came, which was four years ago, I kind of wasn't surprised. And yet it's always a shock that someone looked down a list of names and said, nah, she can go. And so I was, you know, my ego was a little bit, but it was like, this is great. It's kind of like there's a guy you want to break up with and you're not sure how, and then he dumps you and you're like, wait a minute, I'm supposed to call the shots around exactly. here. Exactly. But the decision was made for you, which sometimes are the best decisions. Yep. I was, I was actually really happy about that. Um, and then, and here's what the real turning point was. How did I get into this is what you first asked me. I left there and thought, Everyone else I knew got laid off. It's like, now we have to go file for unemployment. And now I, have, and I said, I'm not doing that. It seems like a lot of effort to go through to be professionally unemployed. And I don't want to do that. I, I refuse. Why don't I just start working and getting work and not worry about all the bureaucracy of a, unemployment? So it was part laziness. And also I thought, I don't want to sign up for being unemployed. I am now self-employed. And I thought, I have this skill set. They're not in the publishing box anymore. I'm not in this traditional employee role. But someone somewhere needs someone to come up with great ideas, develop them and make them make it great content. And so that's what I started to do. And so I started working with people who were in the marketing and sales side for different companies, startups, um, established companies who wanted to sell more stuff, but didn't want to just sell page advertising, wanted to sell branded content. And I thought that is my sweet spot. So that's where I started was really doing that and then realizing that, um, oh, and the other thing, you know this, that I started doing media coaching for an agency here in the city called uh, Two Market Media. They were a huge influence on me and they gave me the opportunity to really cut my teeth on coaching other people to be in the media, which is something I kind of knew, but I got to formalize it. And so between coaching people to be in the media and developing content, I say both these things together, there's no end of business. 
Absolutely. How did you find your clients when you first decided to go into business for yourself? Because I think that's the other part of the the puzzle, really. It's like, okay, you've you've come over this hurdle of believing that you can be self-employed, believing that you can generate your own income, be your own boss. But then where do you, how do you position yourself? How do you sell yourself in a way to get money coming through? Well, you don't start from scratch. And that's why I say to people, and I actually, I do speak a lot about branding, but I'm, uh, and usually I'm speaking to entrepreneurs, but there's a whole world of people who work in, um, as full-time employees and they like it and they need to sharpen their brand. And so before I left Martha, I was already thinking I need, I can't depend on this totally. And I need to make sure that the people I really like and who like me and have seen me at work I stay in touch with them. And that, so my first clients and my most lucrative clients came out of people I knew. Um, One of them was an editor in chief at a magazine that's owned by a company, uh, a bigger company that runs health clubs all over the country. And so I said to her, look, I'm on my own and this is what I'm really good at. And she knew me. I didn't have to start from scratch. So you look back, who are the people you've worked with and for in the past? Talk to them get on the radar. If you had a great relationship, they're going to want to know what you're up to and what you want to do. I know I do. Someone comes to me, I say, what do you want to be doing? It makes me happy to make those connections. And I know it does for you too, Farnish, but um, that was big. And you know what? That woman, that job was the first big consulting gig I got right out of the gate. It was my first five figure a month consulting gig. I've never seen that kind of money in my life. In publishing, are you kidding? I was like, (laughs) I fell out of my chair. I was like, are you And then I other one who was a form, the former publisher of the magazine I worked for. She had, was a real mover shaker. She had a startup and I wrote to her and I said, Hey, what are you doing? Because I'm on my own now and I'd like to help with what your new effort is. And she said, let's talk. So you've got to start barking up those trees. I love it. You're so ruthless in such a great way and you believe in what you're doing. And I, I heard this expression once that just because you have a job doesn't mean that you're no longer, um, you should, you should not abandon this mentality that every day is an audition. Every day is an interview, you know, because you just never know what your future holds. And when you leave all those impressions that you left, all those good impressions, hopefully with everybody you worked with will help you build a bridge towards your next opportunity. Bravo. So your Ted talk recently in Kansas city this past summer, love what you had to say, love what you wore, love the talk, loved it all. I, I, Uh, everything, everything. Your message is something that I have uh, brought up on this show and and cited you, and hopefully people have gone to see this. If not, everyone run to Terry Trispicio's TEDx talk in Kansas City, where you talk about this pressure to search for our passion, which we talk about on the show because it's a popular topic, is a bunch of baloney, and that uh, it's the wrong wrong mindset. Why did you want to discuss this and – what should we be thinking of instead? Yeah, I have. And look, this is people say, how do you come up with TED Talk ideas? How do you get, you pick the thing that bugs you. And this thing always bugged me because this is what we hear everywhere. We're living in a time where people really can build careers and businesses out of things they love. That's great. But when someone's always like, oh, I just live my passion every day, it makes the people who don't do that feel like crap because they're like, wait, well, what's my passion? And it makes most people think, including me, that you're supposed to name that passion first and that when you do, everything falls into place. But the fact is people don't pay you to have passion. They pay you to fill a need. That is how businesses always worked. So, uh, 
you know, finding your passion. Okay, great. But spending all this time, like casting about looking for your passion. I don't know that that's the right way to do it. In my mind, it's been surround yourself with people who you, whom you like and who like you and who inspire you to grow and take whatever opportunities in front of you and work the heck out of it. Like really, like this is such an old term and I don't even like it, but like apply yourself, but like literally show people how passionate you can be doing whatever you do. And when people see how good and how far you rise to that occasion, more opportunities open. But this idea that you have to know that passion first, no way. I, that is not how I grew my business. I I have, I've seen close friends of mine just have so much anxiety over this issue. You know, they graduated from college. They were very uh, successful in school and academia. They graduated into the workforce thinking that they were going to run the world. They were going to be handed these amazing jobs. They were going to be able to influence lives and change their own lives. And it didn't happen. And so rather than taking the next best thing, which may have not have been ideal to them, but you know what? It paid the bills. It got them in a workforce. It got them accountable. They were, they felt stuck. They felt paralyzed because they wouldn't be able to proudly say where they were working. And then push came to shove and guess where they were working? Olive Garden because they had to pay the bills and yet they hadn't done anything to move the needle really, you know? And then suddenly six months down the road, they're like, well, I really need to find a job. And so at this point, right. no one's offering me one anymore. So I'm just going to exactly. go to the There's classifieds. No there is no shame in doing work. And think of it as like, I don't know how you feel about this analogy, but I've been thinking lately that a lot of work feels like an arranged marriage. Um, and sometimes you arrange it yourself. And it's not forever like an arranged marriage is supposed to be. But sometimes you do a thing and you're like, I don't know how I feel about this. And you go in with kind of like open expectations. You're like, maybe it'll work out, maybe not. And then you find that you learn to love a thing. But you can't discover what that is if you don't get in and do it for a bit. No way any day in my life up until like a few years ago did I say, geez, all I want to do is be a media coach. A media coach, even now the name of the term media coach, I don't even like that term. But I know what I like to do and it's, only as a result of working with people day after day after day and realizing, oh, I'm really good at helping them do this. But I couldn't have dreamed it up. If you rely on your own brain to come up with a perfect passion, you're limiting it. You're limited because you're only limited to what you have in your head. When I say get out and do lots of things and you will refine it. Sometimes you're lucky and you do find your passion and you are able to monetize that quickly. So not to say that this isn't possible, but that I think what you're saying is that this shouldn't be the only thing you're shooting after because it could end up paralyzing you and you miss so many other great opportunities and really discovering oh, yourself. Yes. And and the truth is, I if you can't tell from the sound of my voice, I'm incredibly passionate about what I do, mm-hmm. but I won't say, oh, I landed on the passion first and then I built a business plan. That's not how it works no, for me. No, no, no. I want to feel energized and excited. And I, I have a very low threshold for boredom. And so if I get really bored and there's nothing to learn, I move on. But a lot, I think not enough people allow themselves to learn because they're afraid it'll take them down the wrong path that's not on brand for them. Get over that. Yes. <laughs> Amen. Well, let's learn more about your financial perspectives, Terry. I would love to dig uh, dig around and find out, first of all, what is your financial philosophy? I, I feel like we never really chatted about money, even in our meetings at the Mastermind. We are all about work and you know catching up. But now that I have you on the mic, I want to know, what's your money mantra? Well, my money mantra, and this is actually a late breaking philosophy that I recognize that only came about 
as a result of working, um, really having just my own fees. And that is, I'm not out to charge what I'm worth. My worth is separate from what I charge. My worth is separate from what someone pays me. And this was a critical point for me because I used to think, and this is where we fall into the trap. If you charge what you believe you are quote worth, then you either feel like crap and charge very little because your self-esteem is in the toilet. And then you're like, oh, well, I'm not worth anything. So I guess I'll take what I can get. Or you're like, I'm so awesome. I'm worth a million dollars an hour. No one can afford me. Both cases, you either price yourself under or you price yourself out. And so when I realized that I should unhinge, disconnect my worth from what I offered, I was freer to charge what I believed was right for that job. Because this is the example I always use. A press release, you're going to be hard-pressed to find someone who pays more than $500 for a press release. Um, even though, in my opinion, press releases are completely outdated, they still are part of the PR industry, and I've been hired to write them before. Um, 300 bucks is really what someone wants to pay. Now, I've been a writer for many, many years. I should charge $1,000 a press release but no one's paying a thousand dollars for a press release. And I don't get to be mad because I'm worth that. Your worth in the marketplace is worth what does the market bear? And you, I'm to you of all people, Farnish knows this. But when people get their esteem, their self-esteem caught up in the money, that's dangerous. So I know what I'm worth. I know what I think I'm worth as a human, but I don't try to price my worth because then that becomes too emotional for work. I love that. So two things, do you then just stop writing press releases because it's not worth your time? Yes. Okay. That's true. I will take, I will have other people write that. Um, that I, I said, I'm not doing that. And also instead of that, because the press release is so small, it's just this one little task yeah. that, you know, you don't have to, they're not, no, no one wins a Nobel prize for a press release. Instead, I create value for people who really need that value and price that what it's worth to them. And I'm not in the press release writing business. That is not a business that is sustainable or scalable for me. So that's not what I do. But I can offer people way more in terms of their brand. I mean, the way I say, by the way, what I do is I help people figure out what they want to say and how to say it and be better presenters of their own brand across all media. And so, yeah, I can help them do that. And I can add more value to what I offer. That is worth more. What's it worth to them? That's what you should ask, not... How long will it take me? Or am I worth it? Yeah. Am I worth this? Is it's it, a clinical difference. It, it is. And it's it really comes down to the power of, of of language, vocabulary as an MFA in poetry. You know this better than anyone. When we think of worth, we think self-worth and we think yes. extremes. It's either I have no self-worth or I'm just uh, – I'm basically pricing right. myself as, uh, pricing myself out of the market. But when we think value, that's measurable. You know, that you can right. really incorporate I can metrics. List someone. You can list things. Here's what I do. Right. You can list it. And it's also like someone else might go, well, I don't want to pay more than 500 for my web copy for my site. And I go, okay, good luck. Go find someone who'll do that. Like, I know that what I would do for someone's content is worth more. It's, I have to set prices so that I'm not taking whatever comes along. And that's a big thing that I've said to people. I, I do a lot of speaking to people who are quote freelancers. I say, stop calling yourself a freelancer because freelancers are the waitresses and waiters of the operation. They're table servers. They're like, can I get you this? Do you need that? Let me pick up that thing off the floor. I want people to think like chefs. You have a cure. You curate a few dishes. You know what's great, and you know what people want. Oh my god! I'm, I'm writing do this down. I'm, I'm multitasking as I'm interviewing you. I'm writing. I'm listening. I'm. Um, I knew this was going to be so much fun having you on the show. So one other question about value. 
how do you negotiate? What's your MO? Do you ask your potential employer, potential client to pick, offer their number first? Or like, what's okay. the what's the strategy? This is a really interesting dance. And I've done it so many ways. And I used to not want to ask for their budget because then I was afraid they'd come in low and I wouldn't be able to anchor them higher. But what I do now is I get a sense. I always do a Skype call with someone. I want to look them in the face. I want to get a physical read of how interested and engaged they are and how serious they take it and what they really want. And then I say, what is your idea? Like, I I get a scale of like, oh, what's the minimum they'd want and what's the maximum stuff I could offer them. And what I do is create two, usually around two, maybe three, but I try to keep it simple, two packages. I go, we could do this, which has all the bells and whistles and everything you want, or we can do a scaled back version for this. Now, sometimes I ask their budget in advance and sometimes I do not because their budget doesn't define what this is worth. And when I think that they don't really get how much this costs, because it can be very expensive, um, and it's a wonderful, it's the, to me, it's the most important investment in your business is how you present your brand everywhere. I will give them to and they might go, oh, well, that's a lot more, or oh, okay, that sounds great, or whatever. I will tend to lead furnish with what I believe what I'm offering is worth, so they get a sense. I want them to say, you're in my house now. This is what this costs. If they say, oh, well, could you do this amount? And they're in like negotiation mode, I go, okay, let's cut it back. And then I'll also off, I will um, delegate some of the stuff. Because the less it is, the less worth my time it is. And so if they want a few, someone tried to like, was bringing the price way down. I said, that's okay, great. And then I'm going to have you work with this person and I'll oversee it. So I don't want to lose the business, but I'm also not going to spend, like, I'm not working hourly. You know, make a difference. You know what I mean? So I, I tend to define the landscape. If I think they don't really know what it costs, then I want them to understand what this costs. And I don't, mine is, my rates are very within the reason. Like I had them checked out by other people. They go, yeah, I talked to someone else about what you do. And this seems really fair. So I spend a lot of time coming up with what that number would be and the two different options. Mm. And you know what? They always want the nicer one. They always do. As Grant Cardone says, people are, are, don't want to spend less and make the wrong decision. They want to spend more and make the right one. Yes. Oh, yes. I know this. I've lived it. Um, you get what you pay for. Absolutely. But wait, for instance, if someone says, well, let me tell if I go, if I think they're worried about budget, I go, why don't you tell me your budget? And they, if they say, well, I have $1,000, I go, okay, well, then I'm going to rejigger and then I'll give them something that fits their budget. Because you can't talk someone into having more money than they have. And I, depending on the opportunity there, I might want to make it work for them, but I want to make them very clear that I'm doing this in a way that works for them. Um, you, so it really depends on the who. Have you always been so confident about negotiating and Hell no. Money. You sound like I'm you terrible. just, you're so, you just sound so with it, you know, and together. And it's so inspiring. And we need more women like you to feel this confidence. How did you, how did you kind of morph into this, this, this mindset? I think, and honestly, I really was not. I was so afraid. Like I was always afraid of asking. And when I asked, when I was an editor and I asked for 40, I was making under 40. And I was like, I just want to make 40. And they were like, well, we can't really do that now. And I was like, just broken up about it. And I thought, oh, I'm not worth $40,000 a year. Like what's wrong with me? I was so chicken. And one of my, my boyfriend at the time said, you know what your problem is? You like your job too much. It's a liability because they know you're not willing to walk away. And for many years, I wasn't. And the second I cost them too much, they let me go. So as an entrepreneur now, I say, 
I never want to like any one thing so much that I have to compromise what's worth my time. Not what I'm worth. Notice I didn't say what I'm worth, what I'm worth, but is this worth my time? And when you work for yourself, I think it's much more sustainable because I always want to have enough clients. If someone goes, yeah, I don't want to do this. I go, okay, bye. I'm not going to ever be in a position of being desperate. Actually, my uncle, who was a priest who died, said to me, he, I was very close to him. And he said, Terry, don't be a desperate woman. And so I always thought, I will never be that. So that's a neuroses of mine. Don't be a <laughs> so desperate was, woman. He said, don't be a desperate woman. I was like, I ne- that's the worst thing. And so I always thought, I always want options. And those options mean you have to continue to raise the bar. The reason I can speak mm. so, so powerfully about it now is because I see other women who are not doing it. And in my mind, I want to advocate for them. And truly having financial power, having money, having wealth, having savings. I mean, what, what, what could possibly be the opposite of desperate? Because when you have money, you have options. You can do things. You can leave if you're not happy. You can start something if you're not happy. My ideal is to always be in a situation as I can walk away from business that isn't working for me. That's the ultimate luxury. That is. Oh my God. Not the Caribbean vacation, not all this. It's the option to do what I want because I'm, I don't like when people tell me what to do. Terry, I love that you have this MFA in poetry because you're putting things in perspective for me that I've never heard them said like this before. Like the ultimate luxury is being able to walk away from a, a piece of business. And I know that's true because I've, I've been in that situation before where I've really wanted to walk away, but I've been too scared. And it is something that I strive for in my own life. And thanks for putting that in such an easy, digestible way. Money memories, Terry, take us down memory lane. You kind of did already with your, you know, your, your background, your wonderful dear uncle, the priest who told you not to be a desperate woman. What's another, (laughs) what's another money memory of yours at an even younger age that today as as an adult woman, you look upon with such, uh, with such appreciation. Well, I'll tell you, since I'm a listener of So Money, I know these questions and I had a lot of fun listening and thinking about what I, what I would say when you asked me. So I'll tell you, one of my first money memories was I was raised Catholic um, and I had my first communion, right? When second grade and you're like this, it's so weird. You're like this little bride. They're dressing you up to marry Jesus or whatever, child bride. I didn't and, say it's uh, weird. You did. So I did. Uh, <laughs> but I was it. very Catholic for a long time. That was my life. And my, one of my gifts that day was a little black satin bag with 10 silver dollars in it. And I thought it was a black bag with a gold drawstring. I still have that. I thought it was the pinnacle of wealth. It was a little luxurious little bag with jingly cash in it, 10 silver dollars. And I said, I am never spending this. Someday it's going to be worth something. I'm going to have it forever. Well, guess what? It's still only worth $10. I should have invested it. <laughs> so I just have this bag somewhere of coins, but I, I had an emotional attachment because I thought it's like money in this bag. It was a little bit of wealth. Well, I don't think it was wasted. You know, you've kept it. It's inspired you. It's been a great kind of memory um, from your past. It was, a, it was physical. It was a tactile feel of money mm-hmm. that I had never experienced before. And, um, did anyone explain to you like why they were giving you this money or what you could possibly do with the money? No idea. (laughs) Nothing. I have no idea why someone would give a child 10 silver dollars in a black bag. No idea, but I thought it was such a great, such a great gift. Um, the other money uh, that, uh, 
a money memory kind of that I thought about this morning to tell you was that um, when I turned like 12, my mother gave me nice makeup. She was like, it was the age when people are starting to wear makeup. And uh, she gave me this stuff from the Clinique counter, which to me was like old lady makeup. I was 12. And I was like, oh, wow, this is really nice. You know, she bought me this nice makeup. And I was like, why? why? And she said, never go cheap on your face. I don't want you buying that crap that your friends buy at the pharmacy. She's like, always good on your face. Mm. And so I was the only 12 year old putting on like Clinique makeup in the morning. And I remember <laughs> Under thinking- Under eye cream and moisturizer, SPF. <laughs> yeah. Oh, and eyeshadow, like the light box. It was this mirrored box with makeup. And like, I was so into it. And I remember thinking, oh, this is, you're supposed to treat yourself this way. And your skin is gorgeous. So props to your mom. And I, you know, I, I worry, I'm, I don't have a daughter. I have a son. If I ever have a daughter, I would be nervous about introducing her to makeup at too young of an age, just because these days I feel like, you know, everything is starting out so soon and 12 year olds are going on 25. But I think you know, our generation, it was, it was probably okay because there wasn't this. It was classy. Like my mom It was classy, right? And Clinique, I, my mom also started me off on Clinique. I think Clinique. She did? Yeah, she totally did. Yeah. (laughs) I think because it's got this. I love it. I don't know. It's, it has a very kind of youthful brand. It wasn't the old ladies. Um, Makeup. I think that's more like Estee Lauder. <laughs> that's yeah, how, how totally. Would, um, but I just that idea that I was I was again. Here's a dangerous thing, but I was worth something nice. Like all my friends were buying cheap eyeliner and yeah. wearing it really harshly. My mom was like, "Don't. I don't like that look." You know. Hmm. Tell me about a failure, Terry. A financial failure that you experienced that taught you an immense amount. That uh, you're glad that you're not. You wouldn't maybe want it to happen again, but you're glad that you went through it at least once. I have a very bad tendency to want to not deal with the numbers of money. Um, and when I was, uh, right when I graduated college, I was just in a funk, like, like a lot of people, I was depressed and I could not bring myself to open bank statements. Now I didn't have much money to speak of, like, you know, obviously I was a kid one, but I, I didn't know what to do with it and I just didn't open them. So for a year I had bank statements, I just wouldn't open them. I couldn't face it because I, to me, that meant like, oh, now you're grown up and you have to manage your, it's the first time you get out of college, you got to like manage your stuff. I was fairly coddled. You know, I didn't have to deal with that stuff earlier. Um, I was lucky. And so I, I just couldn't face it. And I, I just avoided all stuff with money for a long time. My biggest fail was not taking an interest earlier. Mm-hmm. So let's flip it now, Terry, and talk about success. I obviously got over that that fear, obviously it was a fear that you felt that I think is so common too, when you're out in your own first time, real world money can be a scary thing, especially if it's not something that was part of the constant dialogue growing up at home. But now as you're uh, looking back on the career that you've built for yourself, what's a so money moment? Maybe the first time you negotiated a big win. Yep. That I'm telling you, after I got laid off and within a month had my first big client, that was such a win for me because I actually gave them a lower number. I've, it was the one and only time I've been rounded up, but I was trying to be really smart about it. It was this big fitness company and I was negotiating with their sales department to create content for them for major clients of theirs. And I 
gave them a number and I said, but, you know, to keep it manageable for you, um, why don't we keep it at this number? And then I'll take a percentage of whether these people buy or whatever. I don't know. I was just trying to create a build in a little area of growth. And uh, he said, no, we don't want to do a percentage here. We'll just round it up. And that's how I got the five figure a month deal with them for six months. It was the sweetest deal ever. And it ended. But you know, they didn't really know how to use me and I didn't, wasn't savvy enough to figure out what to do with them either. But I couldn't believe I asked for a thing and got that and more. And I was like, holy cow, I could make money on my own. And I was really proud of myself for saying, you know what, I'm not going to be unemployed. I'm just going to start making more money now. And within six months of being laid off, I had doubled my income. Holy crap. Holy crap. Whoever pays now, up. You, it's been up and down. It's been up and down since then, but it's steady up now. What were you saying? I was going to say, whoever gets a raise in negotiation, you know, like whoever gets more they than what they ask for. Like, rounded up by like a thousand bucks or something. It wasn't much to them. They're huge. And that's when I realized there is no end of budget for solutions that work or that excite the people paying for it. So if you can get someone excited about the potential and grow, uh, sorry, if you can get excited about the potential and the growth and they think there's a result, that's something. I've had that and happen so in my own life. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've worked with clients and, you know, first three months, first six months, even the first year, I might take them on because I know that there is a big budget behind them. But the first year, maybe we're, uh, you know, we, we settle on a more conservative rate, but I, I just kill it and then I leave them wanting more. And then right. the next year we double down. So it can happen. Oh yeah. One of my clients dropped me by half. Like they paid a certain amount for six months and then they're like, yeah, we're going to drop you by half. And I was like, ouch. And then after about a year, I met with her uh, in person for something else. And then I, I had to do the line. And I said, cause people go, how did you, cause then I got them to double it again. And I, they're like, how did you do that? And I said, you know, I said, I'm so grateful being, having a chance to work with you and being able to deliver such value at this rate. But I'm, I think it's time that we bring my rate in line with the value I'm already providing. And here's some of those things. And here's what we could do together, like get on the same team. And she said, yeah, it's time for a race. And so they more than doubled what they're paying for me. And, but that wasn't like, you need to pay me more for what I'm already doing. It was like, Hey, I'd love to bring the money in alignment with what I'm doing for you now. And if you're not willing to have that talk, be happy making less. Cause that's where you'll be. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Almost wrapped here, Terry. Let's talk habits. And then we're going to do some, so money yes. fill in the blanks. Number one, money habit. Number one money habit is I do check regularly. And I know that's a big thing you say is like, check the money, have an eye on it. I have, um, I don't, uh, I don't keep a budget and I do want to check out why NAD because we've talked about it so much. Uh, but I am not a great budgeter. That's my big fail. But the good, the good part that is, um, I keep an eye on it and I do try to track everything and I write everything off that I can. Excellent. Oh yeah. The write-offs are, Sometimes the best financial part of being self-employed, besides, of course, the the ability to earn as much as you want, um, the write-offs are a sweet, a sweet uh, addition. Okay, let's talk now about what you would do with a million bucks, your favorite charity. Yes. Let's start with this. If I won the lottery tomorrow, let's say someone handed you $100 million, the first thing I would do is 
But first, got to make sure all my family's needs are taken care of. Like, I don't have kids. I'm, I'm single, but I have uh, kids in my family and I would want to make sure everything was care, you know, taken care of there. Uh, that's first and foremost. But you know what I would do? I'd buy a kick-ass Manhattan apartment. I Good would for buy you. a apartment you'd ever see. Like, I have a nice little studio, but I would definitely upgrade. And you know what's another dream? I would love a personal chef. I would love it because I have a lot of dietary pain in the butt restrictions and I would love to hire someone just to make food for me. That would be awesome. So that's what I, that's part of the money I would do for me to enjoy, but I would also give a lot of it away. Yeah. That's a lot of money. It's a hundred million dollars. Okay. Even after taxes, you can help lots and lots of towns and (laughs) cities. Yeah. The one thing that I spend on that makes my life easier or better is other people. Ever since I started investing in my own team, which, by the way, includes a bookkeeper, um, includes a, a team, an assistant who just is a couple hours a week, um, writer, the more I invest in my team, since I've done that, I've increased my income. You cannot do it all yourself. I do not take any pride in DIY. I'm a why DIY. You do it yourself. <laughs> why DIY? Okay, writing that down. Why DIY? Um, one thing that I splurge on splurge that spend a lot of money on, but you know what? I love it. And it's worth every penny. Food, food, food. Yesterday I spent $15, which is embarrassing after I realized on duck bacon. I know it's ridiculous. I know this cheaper bacon. Duck bacon is so awesome until you've cooked it and eaten it. It's so good. And since I don't like to waste a lot of time on making my own food and I eat out a lot, when I buy food, it's stuff that I really want to eat. And I do not skimp on food. All right, never heard of duck bacon before, but I love I love Try I love it. me some bacon. So maybe that's going to go on my my list, <laughs> my gourmandise list. Uh, one thing I wish I had learned about money growing up is, I guess I, I realize hmm, I wish that I hadn't seen money as a reward because that is kind of how I saw it before. Like you get paid for being good or something. Like I saw it as like, oh, you'll win it. Or you're, I wish I had realized earlier that there was plenty of money to be made um, rather than I have to make the amount that someone's willing to give me. When I donate, I like to give to blank because I love, like I got really excited about Kiva. I give money to Kiva. I, anywhere I can invest in women who are trying to run their own businesses and usually third world countries. And since my dad is from the Philippines, I tend to pick people in that area. Um, and Kiva, of course, is a, a fantastic site where you can give money to someone to use their business. It's like teach a person to fish time. Like they use the money to grow their business and then they give you the money back and then you can reinvest it in other business owners. So if I could, I would invest in women's education and women's businesses. If I could invest in a big way with my hundred mil, that's where I would do it. But I still do it now. And last but not least, I'm Terry Trespicio. I'm so money, so money because... Because I'm not afraid to be bold to speak up and say what needs to be said. And I think not enough people feel they can do that. And I want to make them feel that they can. Right on, Terry. Thank you so much. Again, I have the honor of knowing you outside of this podcast. We will be convening shortly. Our mastermind is on the schedule. I've been looking forward to it all month. So thank you you so much for gracing us with your presence on So Money. I'm a big fan. We hope to have you back again sometime soon. Thank you. Thanks, Barnish. That's a wrap. Thanks a lot to Terry. If you'd like to learn more about her, the website is terrytrespicio.com. And she's also on Twitter at Terry T, T T-E-R-R-I, 
T. And of course, if you'd like to get the transcript from this interview, the comments, anything else we've mentioned here, hop over to somoneypodcast.com. And while you're there, send me your question. Click on Ask Farnoosh every Friday. I turn the tables, answer your questions, and it's a lot of fun. Thanks so much for tuning in, everyone. Stay tuned. We got Tim Gunn coming up later this week, maybe even tomorrow. That's going to be a surprise. Hope your day is so money. Money.